Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything. I'm Linda Lucina, the Director of Special Projects Entrepreneur Magazine, and I'm excited to welcome you to this podcast about getting poised for greatness. Today, we're lucky to have as our guest, Steve Hindy. Thank you, Linda. He's the founder and president of Brooklyn Brewery, but also a former war correspondent. In building his business, he's tangled with the mob and found himself on the wrong end of a gun site. Today, we're going to talk about the risks he's faced, how they've shaped him, and what we can all learn. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ready for Anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel-powered two-in-ones, you get performance and mobility, power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at smallbusiness.intel.com. How are you, Steve? I'm good. <laughs> so uh, we're very excited to have you, uh, in part because uh, you founded the Brooklyn Brewery, which is uh, one of my favorite beers. It's <laughs> oh, very good to hear. <laughs> uh, and uh, one of my favorite moments, uh, it was a, a girlfriend who uh, lives in uh, Paris, and she sent me a, a photo of herself in France uh, with uh, a, a, one of your beers. Yeah, she said, yeah. I miss you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's quite amazing. Uh, Paris is all about Brooklyn these days, and we're selling a lot of beer there. Absolutely, yeah, and uh, it's it's wonderful. Um, also, your background is in journalism, and you were a former war correspondent. For the benefit of our listeners, can you just sort of list off uh, some of the places you've been and the conflicts you've covered in that enterprise? Well, I arrived in Beirut in February 1979 as the Middle East correspondent for Associated Press. And uh, within a few months, I was sent to Iran to cover kind of the end of the revolution and the hostage crisis. I was there a few months. I got thrown out by the government. And I went back in uh, with the Iraqi army when they invaded Iran uh, in 1980. I lived in Beirut where we had the Israeli war, the massacres in the refugee camps, the Civil War. I was actually abducted at one point in South Lebanon, a very nasty incident where the guys with me were tortured and killed. And then I moved to Cairo, and I was sitting behind President Sadat when he was uh, assassinated. So a lot of big stories. <laughs> a lot of big stories. Well, I think what is um, very, very interesting to our uh, audience is that um, those are sort of real risks that you, you faced. And a lot of uh, people, luckily, very fortunately, aren't faced with sort of, uh, the, uh, sort of do or die decisions. But it does help people sort of put things in perspective. And to sort of roll it back to one of the things that you just mentioned, you mentioned uh, the abduction. Uh, in 1980. That was just a, a month before your son, Sam, was born. Tell me a little bit about the feeling that you had in sort of keeping calm and, and how you got through that. You know, I was just uh, kind of in the right place at the right time to be part of this thing. I was with this patrol in South Lebanon, and we were taken by this militia group. And uh, it became pretty clear that they really wanted the Irishmen who were with me. It turned out to be a vendetta between this militia and the Irish battalion of the UN. So they asked our nationalities, and we told them, and eventually we realized that the Irishmen were the people they wanted. What do you do when someone has a gun held to your head? Uh, you know, you stand very st <laughs> still and do what they tell you to do. And, uh, you know, I just uh, did that and, and got through the whole thing. Uh, one of the Irishmen was shot uh, three times, and we carried him out and got him on a helicopter, and he lived. 
but it was a horrible, uh, horrible incident. It went on for a few hours. I was missing the whole day, so when I got back to Beirut in the evening, uh, all the journalists were at the Associated Press Bureau, and, uh, you know, they thought I had been kidnapped, but I was fine. <laughs> well, uh, fortunately, uh, you've, you've said that uh, starting a business is like covering a war. Um, how, how so? Well, I think when, uh, when your foreign editor calls you and says, we'd like you to go to Tehran, and you know there's a revolution happening there, there's shooting in the streets, and the American embassy has been occupied by students, it's a very uh, heady, exciting uh, kind of assignment. And you have no idea what you're going to encounter and what part of you is going to be called upon to deal with different situations. And I think that starting a business is very similar. I mean, uh, you know, I had no experience in the beer business. My only real qualification to start a business was when I was a kid, I used to win a lot of sales contests. So if the Boy Scouts were selling peanut brittle, I would win the contest. When I was 12 years old, actually, I won a contest. I was the most popular newsboy in Ohio, and I got a two-week trip to Brazil, which was kind of incredible. But so it's not like I had an MBA or my whole life had been focused on starting a brewery in Brooklyn. But I just kind of uh, approached uh, the problems that arose before me in the same way I had approached problems that arose when I got in situations uh, in the Middle East. You know, one problem at a time and uh, be patient uh, with yourself and with the problem and realize that tomorrow's another day. Yeah. What um, quality do you think helps you summon that patience? Actually, I recently met a professor from the University of Toronto, Dr. Anthony Feinstein, and he has studied the psych... He's a professor of psychiatry. He's studied the psychology of war correspondence, and he believes that there's actually a physical difference between a journalist who wants to cover wars and a journalist who wants to, you know, work in Washington or, or in a domestic uh, bureau. And uh, one of the professors he cites is a professor at the University of Delaware who's developed a measure of journalists' willingness to take risk. It's called the Sensation uh, Seeking Scale, the SSS. And war correspondents score very highly on that. So. I don't know. I, you know, maybe it is a physical difference uh, between someone who, who wants to seek those kind of situations. Frequently, I get myself into tight spots. And my wife always says to me when I'm wringing my hands over some problem or some situation I'm in, she says, you always do this, so don't complain to me. <laughs> you know? And actually, I remember I called my dad once when the, the company, I mean, we were essentially bankrupt. Uh, you know, we were running on empty. And I called my dad and I kind of went through all the problems and things that were mounting up. And he said, yeah, do you ever get the feeling sometimes you, you really bit off more than you can chew and, uh, you know, you're just going to crack? And I said, yeah, and waiting for this great wisdom from my father. He said, yeah, me too. <laughs> get back to work. <laughs> and 
And, you know, he's right. You, you got to do what you can do uh, when faced with uh, big problems. It seems very simple, but it's this overlooked idea that it's about work. Yeah, it's a job you're doing. However, I got to say, we raised money from family and friends and colleagues, and I felt, and so did my original partner, Tom Potter, we felt a real obligation to those people. I mean, we wanted to make money for them. Of course, we wanted to make money for ourselves, too, but it took like 15 years before we were able to give them a, a return on their money and an out and an exit from the business. And that was one of the proudest uh, days of my life when we passed out those checks and offered to buy their stock because that, that weighed on me. Sure. You've also said that um, once you had that friends and family money, that was really the thing that was kind of keeping you up at night. And meanwhile, you'd had this background that had real danger. There was, you know, a machine gun fire through your door in Lebanon that you right. had, you know, <laughs> dealing with rockets narrowly missing your house. You were yeah. dealing with um, real, real danger. But there was this moment. What made that obligation to your friends and family? What made that keep you up at night that maybe the other things you were able to sort of like compartmentalize and move on? Like what, what was about that that, um, that that just stuck with you so much? Well, I guess because those people believed in me and believed in our plan, our dream. I knew that a lot of the people who invested shouldn't be investing, really. They, they didn't have a lot of money. So it wasn't really, it wasn't a lot, for a lot of them, it was not a responsible investment. So I just, I, I was determined to uh, deliver for them. And I think Tom was, was too. Mm -hmm. They believed in you. The investment was in you and not necessarily the business. Yeah, and that's an important point because when we started the company, I thought that Tom, who, who had an MBA and a, you know, was a banker, I thought he would be raising uh, most of the money. But actually, I raised most of the money. And I realized that you, know, you have to have a business plan. You have to have numbers that make sense. But really, when it comes down to it, people invest in you. And I've kind of carried that over into my way of doing business. I don't do business with someone who I don't like. Or, or who I'm suspicious of, or who I have any, any doubts about. The personal kind of connection is uh, very important to me in, in developing uh, a business relationship. We've just gone through a process of choosing an architect for our, our big planned expansion uh, brewery. They all had great plans, and uh, they did great presentations. But it really kind of came down to the chemistry between us and them. You know, do you really want to work with these people for a few years through what will probably be some pretty difficult uh, moments? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that kind of flows nicely into a story from early in uh, Brooklyn Brewery when you guys were uh, finishing up the construction uh, for your facilities in Williamsburg. And uh, there was uh, some fellows that wanted <laughs> to be doing business with you. Can you tell a little bit about, tell us that story? Yeah, well, that, that was very scary. The Daily News newspaper did a big story about the first brewery in Brooklyn in 20 years. It was like a centerpiece with pictures of me and our brewmaster, Garrett, and the construction project. And, uh, you know, we were thrilled by the piece. Uh, but the next day, two big limousines pulled up in front of the brewery, and these uh, union business agents got out. And they all looked pretty shady. I mean, I remember Garrett saying, I can't believe they dress like that. It's like... <laughs> 
they walked right out of the uh, Goodfellas or, or something. And the minute they arrived, all the workers on the project disappeared. I mean, it was like rats off a doomed ship. You know, the, the electricians, the plumbers, the, the carpenters, they were gone. And these guys, eventually, I had a, a meeting with them. And at a certain point, the boss put his, I was sitting in an office chair, it was a broken office chair, the kind where you lean back or you lean forward. So I was leaned back in this chair. And he came over and put his hand between my legs and tugged a little bit and said, we're going to have to hurt you. And, uh, you know, my heart stopped and certain other things <laughs> flowed. And, Not uh, the conversation you wanted to have right, that day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then he grabbed me by the shoulders and slammed me into the wall and said, just kidding. And he and all his buddies uh, had a big laugh. And uh, he said, we're going to leave you alone. We want you to come to our Christmas party, take an ad in our journal, bring your wife. You know, I'm thinking I'll take a gold page in their journal, whatever. But they left, and I never heard from them again. Uh, and I wrote about it in my first book, Beer School. Uh, when the book came out, New York Magazine interviewed me, and they wanted to know the name of the guy I called the boss. And I said, you got to be kidding me. I live in Brooklyn. You know. But I Googled the guy. He went to jail for extortion and racketeering the year before the book came out for putting no-show jobs on a school construction project about 30 blocks from my house uh, in Brooklyn. So I had always wondered if he was really a bad guy or if they were just kind of playing around with me. He was really a bad guy. What's, I think, uh, interesting about that is that in the midst of that, you have this situation where um, you're not quite sure how to what to make of this man and what could be happening. Right. Um, but you still were true to uh, what you'd said earlier about even trying to hire the architects. I want to do business with someone right. yeah. who I want to be Believe with. <laughs> I don't think anyone would want to do business with those guys. But yeah. It, yeah, it came down to a core belief of how you wanted to live, yeah. <laughs> how you wanted to run your business, and who you wanted to work with. What do you think helped you sort of remain true to that core of you when somebody else might have just, I don't know, panicked and been like, I don't know, I'll do whatever they tell me. You know, I'm just scared. How, do you, how did you do that? Before I went into business, one of my fears was I would be faced with situations where I would be asked to break the law to bribe someone or, you know, to pay off an inspector or something like that. And that was the kind of behavior, as a journalist, I had been trying to catch people doing, trying to catch politicians who I thought were taking money improperly. So I, I was determined I wasn't going to do that. I was determined that there had to be a way around those kind of situations. Actually, one of my uh, friends a guy who used to be head of the organized crime strike force, Ed McDonald. Ed actually famously played himself in the movie Goodfellas. At the end of the movie, when they're in the hotel room and the prosecutor is turning Ray Liotta into a government, that's Ed. So I called Ed in the middle of this thing. It's a good person to call in this situation. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. just call your, your neighbor who's a, <laughs> a, a, a mob prosecutor. And I explained what was going on, and he said, well, you know, Steve, you've got to talk to these guys because if you don't, they're going to burn down your building or beat up some of your people, and you won't do, be able to do anything about it. And I said, well, you know, what do they want? And he said, well, you know, they're probably going to want to put no-show jobs on your, uh, on your payroll. And I said, okay, no-show jobs. So you, I pay them 
for jobs that don't. So I bribed them. He said, well, yeah. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. And he said, well, you, you, you may have no choice. But he said, at the very least, you got to talk to him. I said, well, what if I call the head of the organized crime strike force, this guy Goldstock, and, and tell him what happened? Ed said, well, you got to think hard about that because they might want you to wear a wire. And if they're really bad guys, you could be looking at the witness protection program for you and Ellen and the kids. It's like, witness protection program? You know, I left Beirut behind. How can this be happening? <laughs> Just trying to make it and go on it. It's so, long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was, uh, it, it was a very uh, fraught moment. And I'm so glad it uh, turned out the way it did. One of the things I think is very um, instructive about the stories that you have experienced is for our audience, uh, which is most risks that people face are pretty doable, but they can still seem paralyzing, right? The internet went down, or maybe I don't know if I'm going to get that loan or, or whatever. When you're in your daily work at the brewery, right? and there is a, a challenge. How does it help you sort of uh, put things in perspective and help other people put things into perspective, the, the background that you've had? I have been in dangerous situations, and, and I have had to take decisions that put me in danger and put my family in danger, for that matter, when I, when I was in the Middle East. So that does give you a kind of broader perspective about where a particular problem fits in on the uh, scale. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, that, that does give you a better perspective for uh, looking at a problem. Maybe you're a little calmer than everyone else in the room. But still, problems, you know, like falling sales or issues with personnel, uh, there can be very difficult uh, problems that arise, you know, pretty commonly uh, in business. But they kind of pale by uh, having a gun to your head. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's, it's, it's a very important thing for people to remember because um, in the course of uh, business, in the course of life, there's two things people have to keep in mind, right? There's the, the thing you have to face right then, right? So say in your case, if you were in a situation where you're being robbed at gunpoint, mm -hmm. right? All right, well, you have to sort of deal with that right now, right? You can't put that L off. Right, right, right. right. But, yeah. but there's also, um, in life, there are things that are part of sort of the long, the long scope, right? Mm -hmm. And looking uh, at part of the, the bigger picture, right? And how, how do you help people see the bigger picture? Most things, how one piece fits into the larger picture. Like, how do you do that? Actually, I just read a book called The Martian, and uh, it's a fantastic business book. Because it's about an astronaut who is on Mars with a Mars mission, and something goes wrong. He gets injured. They think he's dead, and the other astronauts have to leave Mars. And he is left there knowing that there won't be another Mars mission for something like 490 days or, or something like that. And it's very interesting the way he sets about dealing with his situation. And frequently he says, okay, well, I can do this, this, and this, and the other stuff, oh, I'm, I'm going to bed. I'll put that off till tomorrow. So he, he's always kind of confining his thinking to things he can do today. And tomorrow is, is tomorrow. Actually, one of our brewers last week, the uh, little 
gearbox that uh, runs our brew house broke. It, you know, it just, I mean, this is not something that happens very often. But the, the gears, you know, just fell apart. And it was very difficult. We had to stop brewing. And it ended up uh, holding us up for like eight days because the German company that made the uh, brew house had to manufacture a new gearbox for, for this thing. And so I was talking to Kyle, who's uh, one of the brewers, who, who was uh, wringing his hands over this thing. And I said, you know, you should read this book, The Martian. <laughs> you, know, you think you got problems. And, you know, every day they would say, oh, it's supposed to come tomorrow, and it didn't come tomorrow. And then at a certain point, Kyle said, you know, I don't think this is really going to happen until next week. And so everyone kind of relaxed, and we realized, you know, you can't brew if that gearbox is not here. Eventually it got there, and now we're up and brewing again and catching up on everything. <laughs> so, I mean, most problems uh, can be solved, I put it that way. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's it's something that uh, I really feel like people uh, lose sight of, and I think that there's a a sense of often panic or sometimes paralysis sometimes when people get into a situation that they've never uh, been in, mm -hmm. and so they aren't sure how they're going to be able to sort of tunnel out of that. Are there traits that you think that you um, you use or that you sort of deploy when you're in a situation that you've never been in and that you you know, you depend on most to sort of tunnel yourself out of something new? I'm not uh, a real fast talker, as you might have noticed. And I tend to be kind of calm in situation, difficult uh, situations, calmer than a lot of people around me. I, I, I think that's a good quality because it, I think it kind of puts other people at ease, like you know, they think that I have an answer, which I frequently don't. <laughs> but at least I'm slowing them down and, and enabling us all to kind of take a breath and, okay, how are we going to deal with this? What can we do today? And, and what can we do tomorrow and the next day to solve this? We have to do it, but let's do it calmly. <laughs> Panic rarely results in a good decision, I think. Mm-hmm. And it also uh, can uh, lead people not to be very creative either. Uh, you lean on uh, what is um, maybe an old hashed-out solution, something you can yeah. do quickly, but not necessarily the thing that will be the uh, the most creative and innovative way out of a hole. Yeah, it's funny with problem-solving. So many problems are unique, and often you have a tendency to view them as being similar to other problems you've had. but Really, it requires kind of wiping the slate clean and, and taking a fresh look at this particular problem that you're facing. And when, when you do that, when you sort of wipe the slate clean, what do you, what's your first step when you, you approach it that way? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Brooklyn Brewery is in a very different place than it was back in the entrepreneurial stage. We have incredible people uh, on the brewing side, on the administrative side, on the finance side, on the marketing side. So it's not just me. And, and if you can provide that moment of peace and sort of relaxation, everyone calm down here, what do we do? Often the solution comes from other people. It's not me coming in and, uh, you know, giving the answer because I frequently don't have the answer. But we have a lot of smart people now, and they're really good at what they do, and, and you got to trust them 
to do it. Sure, sure. Uh, just keeping the space and the culture to give people the, the ability to do what it is what they do best. Yeah, yeah, to, you know, relax, let's address this. And that, I, I think one of the hardest things for an entrepreneur is going from that entrepreneurial stage where you're doing everything in all areas to becoming a, a more a manager where you're trying to help other people to do everything. And that, you know, that's difficult because as an entrepreneur, frequently uh, I think we feel like we're the best. You know, like when it, when it comes to selling beer, I know I'm the best beer salesman at Brooklyn Brewery. But I also recognize that at a certain point that if I didn't teach other people to sell beer, we weren't really going to grow very much. We were going to be very limited. And actually, I saw other entrepreneurs who, who kind of were very unwilling to delegate, to give up responsibility. And their companies uh, atrophied. You know, they just they couldn't grow. And eventually, they kind of wore themselves out. They burned out. So it, it was clear to me that even though I'm the best salesman, I had to, you know, give the privilege of sales to a lot of other people. And, you know, I, I admit there are a lot of guys who are much better salesmen than, than I. Mm-hmm. There's only one Brooklyn Brewery. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, um, that's all the time that we have today. But uh, I want to thank Steve once again for taking the time out to, uh, to chat with us. Uh, this has been just an amazing chat. Thank you. Well, thank you. I was happy to do it. Um, and uh, if you want to hear more uh, from uh, Steve, make sure to check out his book, Beer School, <laughs> available on Amazon and at all great book retailers. And to listen to more podcasts from this series, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and follow us on SoundCloud. And before we go, one last word from our sponsor. Ready for Anything is sponsored by Intel. Small business owners can't afford to choose between A or B. If both help your business, you want A and B. With Intel-powered two-in-ones, you get performance and mobility, power and freedom. That's the power of and. Experience it at smallbusiness.intel.com.